Hey everyone, it's Stephanie. I just wanted to come in at the top of the episode and say we are going to be talking about Gerald's Game by Stephen King, as I'm sure you saw when you downloaded this episode. We will be going through the entire plot of what happens uh, in both the book and the movie, so there will be spoilers. Also, there are a lot of tough themes in Gerald's Game, including, but not limited to... Uh, rape, marital rape, sexual assault of a child, incest. Uh, There's definitely some gnarly body horror. We talk about it in the episode and a lot more. So know yourself and take care of yourself. It was a great conversation with Alex Steed and Sarah Marshall of the You Are Good podcast. And Sarah Marshall, of course, does the You're Wrong About podcast, uh, which I've been a fan of for a long time. So we will get to the conversation after this quick ad so that we can listen to the episode without interruptions. So thank you so much. See you on the other side. This episode is brought to you by Macmillan Audio. You don't want to miss this terrifying debut audiobook read by Adam Lazar White, a gothic thriller about grief and death and the depths of a father's love. Johnny Compton's The Spite House is a stunning debut by a horror master in the making. Think The Babadook meets Paul Tremblay's A Head Full of Ghost in Texas Hill Country. This is out now from Macmillan Audio, and thank you for supporting the show. Welcome to Books in the Freezer, a podcast dedicated to the deliciously disturbing world of horror fiction. I'm your host, Stephanie, and today I am joined by guests Alex Steed and Sarah Marshall. You might know them from the You Are Good podcast and Sarah from Well, You Are Good and You're Wrong About. And today we are all talking about Stephen King's novel, Gerald's Game, uh, along with the 2017 Mike Flanagan adaptation. So thank you so much. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. I'm unbelievably excited to talk about this very grim uh, pair of medias. It's a fascinating opportunity for us. Uh, Sarah was hinting at this earlier, but um, it's kind of a a tradition of ours on our show um, where we cover movies through this this, uh, feelings lens, as we say. The um, that when we cover Stephen King, who we both love, we always cover the book as well as the movie. It's the only time that we really do page to screens. And we do that together, usually, mm-hmm. because it's hard to get a guest to commit to reading a full Stephen King it's book. and then watch the movie. It is. So, it is. so this is such a, you know, it's... <clears throat> such a blessing to be able to do this with a with a third party <laughs> yeah well, i am excited this uh is definitely full of feelings i have a lot of feelings <laughs> about this 
about this story. <laughs> so, uh, Sarah, you said you had read it earlier. What was your first experience with this story? I have a really vivid memory of listening to this audiobook read by Lindsay Krause, who I know best from season four of Buffy, apart from this, um, <laughs> and who I think does an amazing job and also does the audiobook of Misery. While I was driving across Colorado and Nebraska. So to me, this book is driving across Nebraska, which makes total sense because they're both about like pain and endurance. And <laughs> I guess was it's funny because we guessed an episode doing um, the Dead Zone page to screen. And in that episode, I was like, I think the Dead Zone is my favorite Stephen King novel. And then reading this again, listening to the Lindsay Cross audiobook again, I was like, no, I think this is definitely my favorite Stephen King novel. And I think that like, what I love about Stephen King is my like pure conviction book to book that this one is really my favorite. But, um, <laughs> Gerald's game definitely made me cry the most and almost throw up the most. And that really <laughs> says something. Yes. Uh, what about you, Alex? This is my first experience with it. I have known since uh, Sarah read that, that this was high on her list. Um, and uh, though I haven't, I, I have a bias towards, um, you know, Stephen King's older books. And I often have difficulty straying from that, although I just read Fairy Tale, which I liked quite a lot. Um, yeah. But I was, I mean, we'll talk about this, the horrors in this book, um, which are much more the horror is uh, in the family than the horror is supernatural. And so I think that that's the thing that makes it work in a tremendous way. And then I had just realized in looking at the Flanagan movie that it came out um, a month before the Harvey Weinstein uh, 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 news broke in oh, 2017. Wow. And I just wonder how this movie would have done had it come out six months later, because yeah. it's yeah. thematically um, speaking to a lot of what has been spoken to uh, since that time. Yeah. I remember the first time I heard about this book, I was working as an overnight baker and this one girl told me she was reading this book and I asked her what it was about. And she told me like, yeah, it's a girl like uh, her and her husband are doing something. She's chained to a bed and he dies of a heart attack. And I'm like, that's, that's the whole book. I remember thinking that sounded not very interesting. <laughs> I'm like, how do you possibly make that work for a whole novel? Then I listened to the audiobook um, a few months later at that same job. And I remember at the degloving scene, oh. having to like steady myself on the table because I was getting so nauseous. Mm -hmm. I was sick for a full day. I, the next Were day. You? Yeah. I, I, the next day. This is when I texted you about it, Sarah. Mm -hmm. The next day was walking and at least three times the imagery from that scene popped into my head and I got wo like woozy oh, as if I had oh lost blood. And that's the most, as I said to Sarah, the most um, unsettled by a narrative description I've been since I, at least I was a child. Yeah. What is the last other description you remember being that disturbing? I think, it was, strangely, it was it. I think it was mm -hmm. the beginning of it where they're describing the state of the body in the water. And I think that mm -hmm. that was more because, um, uh, I think that was more because I, I could finally picture myself being dead. But in this one, I could absolutely imagine getting into a situation where I'd have to de-glove. Totally. I do not tend to have a weak stomach around horror movies 
that's like changed a bit as I've gotten older, but like Gerald's game, the movie is the first thing ever in a movie that has ever made me like truly almost barf. And it's a really, it's a testament to what sound design can do for your horror movie as well, I think. (laughs) Oh my God. That, um, the scene, I know Shudder just recently did like 101 scariest movie moments and Mm. that was on the list just the they played it again and this time i don't think i even watched it i had to like look away i'm like i can't watch this again <laughs> i just read this i know what happens and i love <laughs> i just, love it just I really, slides off it's like... oh my god and the progression that gets there because it, it obviously the mm-hmm. the um gerald's attempted rape is by no means uh funny the the tone um of when prince arrives and starts meddling with the body is is kind of is i found it kind of funny and then Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. we just i think like starting with like a little bit of humor makes the progression to um uh almost full degloving uh even better (laughs) i think it's funny in a very main sort of way where it's like you hear about the guy up the road had a heart attack trying to force himself on his wife she had to de-glove her own hand slipping out of the cuffs it's exactly drove herself to safety and only found out later there'd been a serial killer there the whole time that's how we survived if you want more of my main accent please send 299 to PO Box 107 Portland Oregon in a seat yeah we have to have that as a background character in an upcoming King novel just like it's better than most um, audiobook uh, stabs at the main accent I think that I have listened to so many Stephen King audiobooks that I feel like I have kind of a basis for comparison. And I would love to hear what you both think. But I I remember thinking that Michael C. Hall and Fred Gwynn both did really good jobs. Was it? Mm -hmm. No, it wasn't Fred Gwynn because he was the actor in the movie Pet Cemetery. It was Edward Herman. Yeah, I think Edward Herman did the best. And James Franco didn't even fucking try. (laughs) Which one did Edward Herman narrate? The Tommy Knockers. Oh, it's great! It's so long. <laughs> uh, did you listen to Dolores Claiborne? I have never read Dolores Claiborne, and only reading this now the second time did I realize through looking it up that like there's a Dolores Claiborne connection. It's kind of mm-hmm. the only supernatural thing in this book. I feel like yeah. actually is the sort of psychic connection. Yeah. to Dolores Claiborne I'm like well now that I know Gerald's game has a sassy sister novel <laughs> oh it is sassy too. I know it's fucked up and I know the movie is fucked up and it'll ruin um David Strathairn for me is that who's in that I think, I think so I think also um Dolores Claiborne is the king text that gets um requested the most of our show really, really? Yeah, that makes sense. Interesting. As like a movie in particular. Because it's so knowable and it's it's also yeah. totally on supernatural, right? Or maybe except for a few tiny little Except licks. for the eclipse part mm. of it. But yeah, well the audiobook, it's just one long monologue and she it's it's written in a main accent. So it's the whole audiobook is her speaking that way and saying like sit down i got a story to tell you that is some high concept fucking spoon river anthology literary (laughs) shit right there and i will go to my grave angry that stephen king who sucks in many ways very anti-fat very misogynistic at times writes very racist shit especially early in his career i could go on however i don't think he's ever been fully recognized for like the literary guy that he is 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot just in this book. Like I highlighted so much of it. Yeah. Like what stood out to you this time? Is this your second time? This is my second time reading it. Um, I think there was just a lot of quotes that I highlighted, but I think also the goody, the good wife voice this time. Mm. I think the first time I listened to it, I think I had a bit of disdain for the good wife voice and I kind of just wanted her to shut up. Mm -hmm. And I mean, to make it personal, I grew up like in Christian fundamentalism, like the Duggars, like women don't wear pants and drums are evil. Oh wow, drums. There's so many drums in the Bible though. Yeah. God. I know you would think. Least of their concerns really. (laughs) (laughs) Truly. But I think this time noticing that the good wife voice does help her survive and she survives by realizing that that is also a part of her and it's a part of her that's been passed down you know with how to survive in a patriarchy mm-hmm. totally yeah, yeah and I, each, I, had... I was just gonna say yeah each each of these voices um has a purpose and i think as they're presented at the beginning it feels like some may have more weighted value than the others but you know, she's able to distill that purpose over time, which is fascinating. Yeah. Well, Sarah, would you be okay telling our listeners what Gerald's game is about, mm. roughly? Oh my goodness, yes. Um, so Gerald's game is about a it was a novel that came out in what, nineteen ninety, ninety one, ninety two? I think somewhere 91. in there. Ninety one. Um about a woman named Jessie. Mayhoot Burlingame and her husband Gerald Burlingame who at this point like can only sustain an erection when he puts her in handcuffs so that's what they're going to do they're going to the lake house in October so no one else is at their lake house nearby oh well I'm sure it'll be fine and they go to the lake house she decides actually no I don't want to do this please let me out And he's like, I'm choosing to ignore that. We're proceeding. And so as he's attempting to rape her and she's kind of already in this internal monologue because Stephen King books are all so incredibly verbal um, that we're like deep into a monologue, internal monologue in the book and what is like three minutes of movie time. Um, She's thinking like she could, she could, if he goes through with this and she can't fight him off. Like no one would ever care. No one would believe her. And so she tries to kick him away and he has a heart attack and dies. And really the rest of the book is her attempting to figure out how to save her own life. And in the book she does though, with inner voices that are the good wife character who's sort of her repressed good wife side, the voice of her college roommate, Ruth, who's like the tough kind of survivalist side of her and the face, the truth side of her. And ultimately the child within her, literally her inner child. This book is like Stephen King goes to therapy or at least his (laughs) wife goes to therapy and tells him all about it. Yeah. It's good wife, child and second wave feminist. Yes, totally. The three faces of Eve. And it's so funny to me, and it makes sense that in the movie, instead of that, we get the inner voices represented by actors portraying them are like inner, like sort of inner adult uh, Jesse, inner child Jesse, and Gerald, 
Yeah. I assume partly just because Bruce Greenwood wanted more screen time. Which I say, <laughs> why not be in a movie for six minutes and then get second billing, you idiot? <laughs> I did love, I love that mechanism a lot, actually. I think it would have been the very Gerald difficult. Yeah, there? yeah. yeah. And, and, and her seeing herself how Gerald sees her and realizing that, like, mm-hmm. I like that a lot. Like, I can't, and also just I can't imagine how they would have given us the backstory of who these other people were yeah um, i mean like three or four carla guginos in the same frame is like honestly a bit much <laughs> i'm in i'm into it as someone who as i told you sarah as someone who loved this loved the Polly shore classic mm-hmm. son-in-law i had I no idea she was ready. a son-in-law i'm running <laughs> yeah. out and watching it immediately um i did just watch snake eyes which he's kind of one of the only oh, good yeah. things about aside I've never from seen that one the camera um it is a Nicholas Cage movie with an assassin. It's like, it's very Brian De Palma. It's like if Brian De Palma made an 80s movie in the 90s. Don't so. we get Caruso's buns in that? We get buns. I There's think. no buns that oh, I can well, recall. So, you I'm know, hesitant thumbs up on Snake Eyes. <laughs> but, yeah. And, and, and to speak to, like, Gerald representing that voice, two things I think about that in brief are movies need different things than books dramatically. And B, I do think that has the effect of showing, like, the representation of, like, the overt repression of, like, being a woman in a man's world and in a world where men abuse women and girls um, versus, like, the internalized oppressiveness of these other characters that she's talking to and voices in her head to some extent, which I think is interesting. Yeah, And so she also, the first night comes... And she thinks she sees a big scary man in the corner, um, but she's like, "I surely the, there's not really a big scary man in the corner." A stray dog comes in and starts eating her dead husband, um, and she gradually has to recover um, her actual will to survive by connecting with herself as a child before her father molested her which is also a memory that she has to confront and go back to, which she's been avoiding doing for her entire life for 29 years. Um, And through doing that, and I think the thing I remember finding most moving when I first listened to this is like recovering the will to live by like setting herself internally free from like these stocks of shame that she's been keeping her younger self in this entire time for the crime of what she believes to have been, you know, tempting her father into abusing her, um, which is also very, very it, um, the novel. And so by <laughs> another d- difference between the movie and the book that I love is that in the book, she realizes through like thinking through this memory and being reassured by one of her kind of inner voices that she has the tool she needs to survive her in there. Um, she remembers that she and her father were looking at this total eclipse, which this abuse incident happened during, like through just like panes of glass that he'd cut out of a storm window. And because of the timing of when this movie was made, they set this scene not in the early 60s, but in the late 80s. And clearly were like, obviously no parents in the 80s would let their little children handle just like panes of glass with like broken edges. So they have Jesse like grab a glass at dinner because she's freaking out after the 
event and like cut her hand that way. But in both cases, she's able to remember that like blood is very slick. And if she is able to like smash a glass and cut her hand and her wrist, like maybe she can like get enough blood to lubricate her hand and squeeze out. And that doesn't quite work. But what does happen is that she's cut her hand up so much that it just kind of works out that she is able to de-glove her own hand by yanking her her hand through the handcuff. And it's the grossest thing I've ever read. And I love that scene so much. It's one of the great scenes. Before there was Saw, there was Gerald's Game. And I love the way <laughs> Carla Gugino acts it. I think it's like the kind of role Clint Eastwood normally has. Um, it's like, I don't know, some, I, something very Western about it all. And, and then she escapes. And then as Alex pointed out in a very enthusiastic, and she, and she escapes like very slowly, I might add, because then it's like, you're almost bleeding to death. You've been lying here for two days. Like, it's going to be real tough to get to safety. But for the sake of brevity, I'll say that she does. And that, like, the action really continues. And then, as Alex pointed out in a very enthusiastic text message, we got a bonus serial killer. Stephen King comes out in his robe like Ferris Bueller and is like, but wait, I have a serial killer for you. And then we get uh, in the movie, uh, Jessie writing a letter to her younger self. And in the book, her writing a letter to Ruth, her college friend, who's kind of, like, internalized voice helped her, helped her through this. And telling her all about how there was this like acro megaly suffering giant grave robbing incredibly prolific gross serial killer who is in the room with her as well and i love like, that who's like who's like a superhero version of ed gein basically. yes he's like what if ed gein was like a new englander who put in his hours what about that also this movie was filmed in alabama the main of the South, as I'm sure no one has ever said. <laughs> Although it does have fishing. They, they do bring up Louisiana, and there are a lot of Louisiana main connections. Oh, really? why is yeah. that? Uh, the Acadians. Oh, uh, who, of went, who went down to become Cajuns. Okay, perfect sense. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. adjacency to that, French that, speakers that makes it work. That, the serial killer's name makes total sense in that setting oh yeah like it's the only setting it would make sense love it okay. and i don't i guess want it to not escape mention that alex you pointed out that uh amato's in gorham maine is mentioned several times for a while it looks like jesse's last meal is going to be a salami sub from yes. uh amato's what is amato's and what is its significance to you um, amato's is um Oh, it's complicated. It's not complicated. It's just like an, a, a, a sandwich shop run by Italians that sell what is known in New England as an Italian, which is a, a grinder sandwich. Which is an Italian child. Thank you. Which is, <laughs> and the reason why it's, it's so, so there's several, several notes I want to hit here. They have maybe 20 ish locations in Maine. There's probably more, and I, I don't have it right, but like you can, in any town with a substantial population, you can go to an Amato's. Hmm. They they their version of an Italian is boiled ham, um, and that was very controversial for my father who moved up from the Boston area. Um, but you can also get an original Italian, which is an actual Italian. Um, <laughs> um, 
And then, and so, which is a very funny sandwich uh, opinions. Uh, like people, Sa- I'm. Am- has anyone ever been murdered over sandwich opinions? Oh my god! Yes, I'm, I'm positive. And then right? anyone you know in in northern New England who goes back far enough will claim that someone in their family actually created the Italian. And then my last bit of Amato's trivia is this. Um, Amato's where she goes is where I met Stephen King once because I went in and he was um, ordering a sandwich. And it was so funny, like he, they were like, Steve, (laughs) Steve, and no one in, like, I was like, is anyone going to notice that this is Stephen King? And so I I got an opportunity. He looks like everyone else there. Why would they notice? I wrote for the Bangor paper at the time, so I felt emboldened to go up and talk to him. And I I said said a nice thing about The Shining and how much it meant to me and how it saved my life in a lot of ways because it it, uh, changed my relationship with drinking. And he said, uh, same for him. And then he went out of his way to come and say goodbye before he left the shop. Very sweet man. That's so nice. Yeah. But Am- he clearly loves the Gora Mamados, which comes up a lot. I feel like there's a subtext of like, if I have to die chained to a bat, at least at least my last meal was a, a, a grinder from. Do people say grinder in Maine? This also, I'm sure, is very contentious. They don't, but it is a grinder. Yeah, yeah. it is. It is eff- effectively a grinder, but it's in Italian. There you go. It, <laughs> it's like in- my last meal was a long sandwich from from yeah. Amados in Albany. It's like a speedy. Everyone has a different, you know. Interesting. It's insane. The words people have for hot dogs. I just don't even... The, the, the English language is magic. You mean red yeah. snappers. I mean rippers. <laughs> and glizzies. I just learned about glizzies recently. What the fuck are glizzies? I feel like this is a social know. media thing somehow. I think it is. Because my son said it. Approve. And I was like, where is this coming from? <laughs> right? Is your child talking about glizzies? What are they watching on TikTok? <laughs> Here's some warning signs to look out for. (laughs) (laughs) Well, back to Gerald's game, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I have conflicted feelings about the addition of the whole serial killer plot line, but I get it in the book in that this is her finally asserting herself and saying, like, I saw this and her being not believed and then being right about it and her having this triumph over this thing. But I'm always like, but why? <laughs> and if, I, yeah, you know, I, I think... if it was imagined, it wouldn't have that impact. And it's just another thing where she's a woman and she's written off. I, I think to that like... point. Oh, go for it, Sarah. I also feel like Stephen King kind of, we, you know, we just came off of doing a Dead Zone episode. And like a couple of things that stick out to me are A, that like there's a cautionary tale in Stephen King books about being a pretty young redheaded school teacher who marries a Republican lawyer. Don't marry the Republican lawyer. Marry the rangy alcoholic who loves literature, um, apparently. And and also um, that Stephen King, I think, kind of throws serial killers into his book sometimes as if they're MSG, which <laughs> maybe is not always thematically supported, but I always enjoy it. Yeah, I mean... He has like a penis necklace. Yes. He sure oh, I love does. It. There's and there's yeah, I think that there's a lot of issues with <laughs> So so to that point, like the serial to the point of of what the the serial killer function is in the book, everything that you just said for sure, Stephanie, but then also I like that it gives us the opportunity that like the very best man in her life 
still is bad. Yes. <laughs> the, guy, the guy who's helping her out is still just like, I don't know, I like, I like him, he's fine, but like he's, he's not letting me do the thing that I ultimately need to do and I'm going to go and do the thing. And I like that it serves that. But um, yeah, making him like a, a, a ultimately handicapped gay serial killer, I feel like was maybe a little, uh, yeah. a little a lot. Uh, yeah. And also, and also the thing that I loved about the dead zone that's, that came up in our conversation is like, it's a very a cap book. Like it's very mm-hmm. like the, it, in this book, there's like a lot of like, Cops are humans. Like, we got to give them the benefit of the doubt. They're trying to do the best thing. There's, like, a lot more of that than I expected. Yeah. I don't know what He's was like, going on. He's like, walk it it's... back, Steve. You're 45. Yeah. I don't know what's going on back in Steve's late 80s, early 90s. Um, but, uh, but, yeah. I feel but like, I do. Yeah, I, 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 I mean, I, as, like, a, a privileged white woman, Jesse is going to have the best outcome when it comes to police and having a notable husband. Like, you know, they all work together to tell the media a certain story. Mm-hmm. Yes. totally yeah it's like the when you go to Amato's and you're like can I have a, a grinder please and then they put just like a little bit of broken glass in it and you're like hey there's broken glass in my sandwich and they're like yeah but you have no idea how much glass we're putting in other people's sandwiches some of them they're just all glass and they bring it back and they're like this is glass and we're like no it isn't it's a sandwich it's a grinder it's a sub Steve <laughs> Steve? Steve? <laughs> Is anybody here, Steve? So what's the best way to uh, eat this grinder? <laughs> With a human tongue in it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that detail. It's wild. You gotta dice it. I mean, if it's become leathery. You, you gotta to, dice your tongue. You, you, gotta gotta, you know what it? you gotta do? You gotta do a brine. You gotta brine yes, that tongue. Totally. You gotta brine it. You gotta soak it. And you then low and slow. Chop it up. <laughs> oh definitely maybe like maybe it's a make muscle a little, what about do it like chop liver you know chop tongue on toast you'd really have to a little bit of like duck fat because he got that from the that wasn't like a fresh tongue right like that was like from he's a, not getting anything tongue. fresh i don't how did he did did we establish at any point what siren song brought him to gerald <laughs> he just wanders into open doors well well to the so to the point where this is where this story is maybe draws from reality is in 2013, Mm. a man who was a legend in Maine, legend by the name of the North Pond Hermit was arrested. And the North Pond Hermit broke into hundreds of homes Mm. and didn't take tongues or wear penis uh, jewelry, but he, the North Pond Hermit did just take stuff from people's houses and not like, not consequential things necessarily. Like he'd take like, like a picture in a frame, maybe like take change and stuff that was there. But he was a guy who just like withdrew, went out into the woods and would break into people's homes. And like when they, when they um, found him, they, they found that very similar to the, the killer in this book, they found just like boxes and boxes of people's stuff. And it was known in this area in Maine that like, there's a chance someone's going to come into your house and take some of your stuff. Perfect sense. I love, it's the perfect crime. You're like, kids, Take the loose change from the bowl for the ATM, for the vending machine after your swimming lesson. And then it's gone. He's struck again. And he was operating, by the time he got arrested, he was operating for over 30 years. So oh. like this, there could be the, I don't know. Totally. I, know. I buy it. Yeah. Well, and this whole area was supposed to be empty because it was people's summer homes, right? right? 
Yeah. Right. Absolutely. That's why no one would be able to hear her. Yes. Was in Maine, no one can hear out. you scream. <laughs> certainly can. That's what it says when you drive into the state. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it used to say Maine when it, when when we had this like uh, fascist governor called uh, Paul LePage. Mm-hmm. He changed the sign to say "Welcome to Maine, open for business," which might as well say "No one can hear you scream." <laughs> if I were that nationalist, I would change my name to Paul the Page. <laughs> Freedom, Paul. (laughs) I will say in the book, I did enjoy the Ruth we got as a character, even the like bit that we learned about her as a college roommate and how much she was there for her. First of all, she seemed fun as hell. She seemed to have such a fun energy, but just that she was the last person or the only person that she ever almost opened up to and then decided last minute to shut that door and cut her out of her life essentially yeah and you saying that makes it occur to me that like it it's meaningful to me that her arc is like back toward like intimacy with a female friend and like continuing with this like this book has forgotten that a cab but it knows that a mab all men (laughs) so i like i love that you know and just and that like it's it is like so comparatively rare to have some sort of self-actualization plot for a female character without a love plot even implicitly Mm -hmm. inside of it and like it's i i think that that's because sort of the realization of love is considered to be like an essential element of self-actualization for women um Mm -hmm. but i think becoming capable of receiving love is and also, like, we like love stories, and they make a lot of money, so it makes sense to do that a lot. But it's, I don't know. I guess, like, I I love stories about people stuck in something. I love kind of survival stories. I especially love stories about women in survival situations, and they're comparatively rare. And, like, to me, that that arc for her and that kind of, like, faith in her as, like, a solo character um, means a lot to me. I, I pictured uh, in the Ruth character, I alternated between three um, visions of what she looked like. And one was Janine Garofalo. <laughs> I and love that. Totally. One was, one was Fran Leibowitz. Mm-hmm. And then one was Jackie Hoffman, the character actress who looks like Fran Leibowitz. <laughs> there you go. I would, what if this movie was the same, but Janine Garofalo was there? <laughs> like she just shows up that to start talking. Yeah. There's no introduction. We don't say who Ruth is. Yeah. She just shows up and starts talking. You're like, is that Janine Garofalo? It's like when I went to see the menu and I spent two hours thinking, is that Judith Light? Yeah. Yes. Yes. So great. The the thing the, and what I do, what I enjoy about the Ruth character, and I'm curious about both of your thoughts on this is, you know, again, it's like very because of the time. I mean, and because of which which waves we were in, it's very uh, very much a second second wave feminist um, uh, character, and I think a defining element of the second wave in retrospect was a lack of nuance sometimes when it was mm-hmm. important when talking with your friend who may have been molested by their father. And um, I just spit it out, girly. Just <laughs> say it. That's how you talk to people. <laughs> and I understand also that like, it's not Ruth that's talking to her. It's her talking to herself mm-hmm. in Ruth's persona. But I'm, I'm, um, 
it was it was it was an interesting journey learning the reasons why she kept this inside beyond just the trauma of the situation and like what was going on around her socially as well. Um, and, and the fear, and this comes up on our show all the time is like the fear and caginess that comes with getting to see being seen by someone who can actually see you and then being like, I got to get out of here because <laughs> this person's going to see me and I'm going to have to deal with it. Because it fucking sucks. <laughs> and then you're like, no, I'm going to feel something so horrible that then I'll die. Yes. And I really appreciate that this book contains a therapist being like, the feeling won't kill you. Because I yes. have to be told that daily. I'm convinced there are feelings that'll kill me. And then she's like, cool, I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't worry about know, scheduling bye. another appointment. <laughs> Yeah. Also, the reveal in the book where the where she finally this is so perfect where she finally after the ordeal realizes she needs to repursue therapy, and she gets in touch with her therapist who has died, and then she's like, "Well, that's all the therapy." <laughs> Very confusing view. He'll get some tapes. <laughs> She'll get some Dianetics tapes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very hesitant view of therapy. <laughs> Truly. I think that might, I don't know, I was going to say it might be a generational thing. Because I noticed that mm. rewatching Gilmore Girls, I'm like, Amy Sherman Palladino, it's not like therapy. I but. mean, I am just coming up on my year anniversary for being in therapy. And I feel like growing up watching movies, you know, that were made in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, that kind of thing was presented as a joke. You know, like a Woody yeah. Allen character <laughs> being like, I've been in analysis for 15 years. And it's like, oh, when are you going to be better? And I feel like it's now like very culturally accepted, at least for younger adults. Like, no, yeah. you just kind of, people just need therapy. It's like, you need to take your car in. Don't you think that you should be taking your car in? Yeah, like prior, we have we have uh, Alan Seaver from Growing Pains as the therapist. Yeah, we have uh, we have Billy Crystal and analyze this. Bob Newhart. Bob Newhart. As it's like it's not. It wasn't Frazier. like a very competent. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Frazier, who needed a therapist more, more than all, it wasn't a very competent view in pop culture. Um, the no. the step the stepdad from the Santa Claus. Uh, it was a very yeah. I love Neil. <laughs> Neil's with no, us, but we have Neil's to admit right. that, like yeah. the the template for therapists in pop culture, based on these examples, is like a feet male cucks. <laughs> Soy and, boys, and, and also like for that reason, Jason Seaver was always my dream dad. I love yeah. how he was always like he ran his home like a, a European UN. You know, where he Don't. was like, Ben, there are bylaws in the Seaver household and you've just broken 2B. You know, <laughs> there's like a very clear sense of expectations and consequences among the Seavers. Oh, yes, there sure were. But yeah, yes, yeah, so you could tell Steve had a conflicted relationship with therapy around yeah. 1989, Well, I feel like he's like, therapy's <laughs> probably good, but you know what else, the, you know what else works is degloving your own hand. <laughs> you can do it a week at a time steve you can you can try <laughs> it's kind of like s you just like take a weekend and you just really get into it <laughs> oh my god what stands out for you both as far as what the changes from the movie to the book that you felt maybe worked or didn't work so in the in the book i will say the build-up and the scene 
with the father because we get so much build up to it. We get so much of like hinting back to it. And this time I felt my stomach lurch as it got closer and closer to what was happening. Mm -hmm. And there's so much more premeditation in the book where he tells her to wear the dress and Mm -hmm. Um, you know, he kind of arranges for everyone to go away and arranges it so that Jesse knows that he did this. And then, I mean, in the book and movie, it also talks about like the worst thing that he did was how he manipulated her mm-hmm. after right. that into having her think that it's somehow her fault as well. And the best thing is to never tell anyone because it's going right. to keep her out of trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the illustration of him just, and by the way, everybody, trigger warning. Mm-hmm. It's Elliot from ET. Like that's no. the hardest. <laughs> the hard, just like that sweet boy. Mm-hmm. Here we are. Um, but the um, what I think that the illustration of, of that scene in particular, illustration of that character, the character of her father in particular, is just seeing this person who I don't think is consciously being manipulative is just manipulative all the time. Like is just like because like in the book, like when he when he um arranges again to your point like arranges for for them being in 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 uh separate places like this is a person like who i feel like i'm not saying this doesn't excuse him not doing it consciously but this seems like a person who like their only mode of operation is manipulation to everybody and which to me just makes it even more terrifying like it Mm -hmm. makes him like even more frightening and yeah this the I was similarly looking beyond the screen when I knew it was coming up because I was like, oh, this is mm-hmm. big. It's just a nice scene to go, like, make a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. <laughs> Elliot from E.T. does get redempted in other Mike Flanagan works because I know mm. he likes to use kind of his, like, same group of actors. So Mike he's Flanagan had other better house. roles. Yeah. So yeah. What else is he in? Oh, the sorry, haunt, the haunting of Hill House. He plays like the young Hugh Crane, like when the kids oh. are young. Oh, this is the second time that that has come up in a week. I have to watch that. At some mm-hmm. point. I liked it. What about for you, Sarah? Um, let's see. I mean, I think the change in time period is interesting because we go from um a section of the book set in 1963 to one set in 1989 in the movie and. To me, it doesn't play that different because I. It's funny to think also that um, Jesse's mother in the movie is adult Jesse's age in the book, um, and like it's happening in the same time period as the book, and it it doesn't feel to me and like because the, the the family dynamics that are happening in 1963 don't feel at all implausible to me to still be happening in 1989 or mm-hmm. now. Now sure. that I think about it, um, I don't know. And I just find that thought provoking. And I, I also think it's interesting. I always find it interesting when directors make a choice to like time progress Stephen King stories. And I assume that there's like some kind of studio calculus being done about like the relatability factor and how mm-hmm. like we want to see children in the 80s, but adults in the, the now tease. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's interesting to me that like they didn't kind of go with the time period in which this was written and like just what would that be like to have it be sort of like of another time but I think really it's like for childhood stories that we most want that like 
the 80s treatment that we would give this and like to do it for adults just would make it seem unrelatable well it's interesting here because like usually that decision is made as pragmatically as it is philosophically and it's just Mm -hmm. like what like if you can not make two period if you cannot sort of give yourself the obstacle of dealing with like two period pieces like like Mm -hmm. they did this with it like the redo of it that we went back to the 80s but then we were now um you want to you want to not do that but like you wouldn't it wouldn't be an obstacle in this movie because our now is entirely in this house like you could just like it's basically like minor set decoration and then your then in the 60s would just require getting an older car basically and a different yeah. radio yeah so it's it's, an, it's a, yeah i wonder how much of that decision was made for like relatability's sake and most of your audience is going to be you know x or elder millennial do you think they uh would have kept all the slang like people getting goosed <laughs> i would love it if they did i also i love that they they like had sam cook as like the triggering song in this because it would have just felt weird if it was like I think we're alone now by Tiffany or something. <laughs> yeah. That would have. Yeah, definitely. I'm glad they went with daddy's old music as, right. as he calls it. I mean, I feel like ultimately oh, there's like a timeless creepiness to all of this. And like, I don't know. It, I, I mean, there's really like the thing that m- most connects it to period. I feel like is the like second wave feminist quality of Jesse being in college, which makes sense because when Stephen King writes characters in college they're always doing like 60s stuff because that's when he was in college it makes me wonder like what he's drawing from too from like like who who was he drawing from for Ruth in his life I'm curious Hmm. to know oh wow yeah Mm -hmm. like is it was it like just like I've heard this is how they talk or did he have some personal experience I feel like it was someone he knew in academia for like a semester that makes sense yeah I hope she also still sends like dirty greeting cards for fun. <laughs> yeah. That's how Hallmark should try and get people to write cards again. Be like, hey, ne- you can make them dirty. Based on everything we've learned from the past like five years, there is a one in two chance that Ruth became QAnon. Like I feel like everyone mm. who like was like a real, <sighs> yeah. a real sort of like movement type <laughs> grew up and either went further into it or became QAnon. It's <laughs> true. Because in the present t- like the last that she heard of her she was like in a lesbian commune right yeah mm-hmm. oh god she was at the rubber rose ranch chance. and even cowgirls get the blues hopefully <laughs> ideally what was i gonna say oh but going back to i guess a little bit of the ruth character i think stephen king also nailed the importance of hearing other women's experiences because it's mm. when she's in that yeah. woman's group that's really what sets it off as she hears someone else telling her story and she finishes the sentence for her like Mm -hmm. under her breath Mm -hmm. when um they're saying like why didn't you tell your mom and she says under her breath because it would have killed her and that's when ruth is like what'd you say Mm -hmm. what was that there's also i mean to me the the main difference between the book and the movie that i always think of is just like i love this movie but i feel like there's naturally so much you're able to do just with the (laughs) Like the in this movie we have a character talking to herself and in this book we have a character talking to herself for like many tens of thousands of words and it just has a different effect and I feel like Stephen King books and again also having just read The Dead Zone again this sticks out to me like 
I think these books are compelling partly because they're characters who have like internal monologues and who are able to like who talk to themselves all day long um and there's something to me about that to me makes the book ultimately the thing I, I love most given the choice between the two, because it's like, it's just, it, you spend an entire novel in a woman's head. And I think it's important, you know, to prove that there's, you know, that this is like some of the greatest drama I've experienced as a reader is her trying to get this glass of water. It's true. I remember thinking like this happened so fast in the movie. Like she figures mm-hmm. out rolling the tag right away. And I'm like, oh, this took a long time in the yeah. book. Like I feel like yeah. getting the glass was an ordeal. And we got to hear about Newsweek for a while, which I also yes. love. <laughs> um, also, they softened up a lot of the characters. I feel like in the book, she has nothing but disgust for for Gerald in the way that she views him and I don't think that comes across in the movie or at least we're not led to believe that that's their relationship they're at like a natural end of a marriage and Mm -hmm. and not at a like Gerald like Gerald in the book is is um sadistic like he's like Mm -hmm. he certainly like he certainly absolutely crosses lines here and reveals that he has a rape fantasy Mm -hmm. and um and and pushes that but then the gerald that we get the thing that that spoke to me that i i I don't know how it would be to convey it in in a movie but the his smile was such a significant piece and like his smile Mm -hmm. being a form of condescension and like her Mm. coming to realize that the smile is a form of condescension which i feel like is an extremely relatable character trait of someone who's in your life and controlling Mm -hmm. and um yeah i i yeah i thought that i thought that those descriptions were tremendous so so we do get a we, we do get a lot of Stephen King's um, uh, fat phobia in in Gerald, I would we say, um, um, and so I'm glad we avoided that in the movie. But to the to the point that we were all talking about earlier, Gerald's almost too not just a, not attractive in a conventional way, though he is conventionally attractive. I was like, how how is a man who is this much older mm-hmm. than me uh, keeping it together like that? Body with a body, Bruce, body with Bruce yes, Greenwood, Bruce yes, Greenwood. He but he. Um, He's also more charismatic that yeah. I, yeah. than Gerald comes across in the book. Um, I feel like Gerald is written a lot like Harold Louder in The Stand, you know, where mm, he's okay. Stephen King's kind of like shadow self depiction of like the like virginal, sad, fat boy nerd who grew up and was given more power than he deserved and then like wielded it abusively. Mm. And that's a good thing to fear. So aside mm-hmm. from the part where he's fat, but you know, the power thing is good. Yeah. I mean, part of me wonders and if, if in Stephen King's brain, he is fat phobic, but if he, that was his way of explaining away a heart attack, like why that would be so easily triggered by a kick. Yeah. Oh, just have him be a heavy smoker. Yeah, there you go. that's true. <laughs> or just you know, people have heart attacks <laughs> yeah. for some reason. Or like, you know, maybe he... He did a lot of uh, cocaine in his law school days that we never, you know? I mean, yeah, I guess. Yeah, he's a lawyer in the 90s. So. They call go. that booger sugar in Maine. Oh, my God. <laughs> See, that just, that's just bad marketing. <laughs> <laughs>
I like, I like, yeah, again, I, I read this up earlier. I am curious to know how this would have done um, better or worse if it came out six months later, because just like the end of the movie in particular that wraps up that, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, the father's power was in, in um, keeping her silent and Gerald's power was in keeping her comfortable. Um, and then mm. she, you know, to, to your point, Stephanie, like about, about talking and sharing stories, she talks about how she tells her story every day in this, in conjunction with this, um, group that she started in order to get other people to tell and share, other women in particular, based on the one example mm-hmm. we've seen, uh, to tell their story. Um, there's so much going on in this movie that obviously in the adaptation in particular, that is obviously going on all the time. It's not to say that it's not going on all the time, but that would become such a gigantic piece of national conversation the month after the movie came out. And, yeah. and I imagine like, like many Netflix movies just like, just fell flat. I mean, yeah, it's a great it came movie. Out it's... The same months as like 75 other things. Right. And I remember exactly. When this movie yeah. came out, I was like reviewing movies and TV at the time. And it occurred to me to review it. But the moment to review it came and went in like Very five days. Yeah, yeah, and Fl- and Flanagan to your to your point, and I I have not seen the Hunting of Hill House yet, but I just got received an extremely enthusiastic um, recommendation by our friend Eve um, uh, to to check that out. But he he goes on right to make um, Doctor Sleep. Is that after this or before this? Ooh, that's a good question. I think maybe it was 2019. Yeah, so after. Yeah. And and um I do love, at least in these two movies, I was saying to Sarah, there's something about like the um the richness of the sort of visuals and the scenes that these mm-hmm. that you can very much tell they're made by the same filmmaker. Um yeah. it's it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a gorgeously shot movie. It's a great filmmaker and also like a big king fan like he had said this was a dream of his since he was a teenager and he read the book and everyone had said this was an unfilmable movie like how could you yeah. possibly <laughs> translate this they said that about portrait you. of a lady as well so. <laughs> seriously the, and, and to, to the point of of um him very clearly being a king fan is all of the pieces of dialogue mm-hmm. feel like they were written by king even pieces that didn't come straight from the book. Like it feels like it's in King cadence. And all the little verbal homages to Stephen King too, Mm because there's like reference to like taking our medicine. Yes. We know from the shining book, not movie. Uh, Gerald says all things serve the beam. Mm -hmm. Just like dark tower. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 (laughs) This is written by a fan and not someone who was tasked with doing this. Yeah. Who saw like an easy, well, not easy, but a cheaper movie yeah well and i feel like there's something great about like the kind of what is offered by the stephen king cinematic literary universe because like you know this book like many others like situates it alongside other stephen king novels and it is like to me it's it's (laughs) why bother going to a galaxy far far away in star wars when you can just go to Maine. <laughs> or go home. Or go home. Or go to Bangor. <laughs> yeah, I like that's that's a that is a I was obviously reading reviews in particular of the audiobook because I also took this in uh, uh through my ears. And um I was reading the reviews on on the app 
and I was kind of surprised by like people's beef with this book hmm. were were I feel like it must have been mostly male because mm. they were like not scary, least scary book, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. And I was like, "Fuck girl, you!" Yeah, a girl gets molested for like three hundred pages. Like, it's like, are you fucking serious? Like, yeah. I found this to be the most unsettling and convincing outside of the degloving, which is which is the most obvious visceral yeah. of, of mm-hmm. horror. The it's like getting to spend. Yeah, just just spending all of that time with her young and then getting to spend time with her being manipulated in the way that mm-hmm. she is and getting to spend all of this time in her head. Um, I found it to be the most, I think maybe the most unsettling of, of his books um, yeah. that I've come across because, you know, Sarah always says with regard to horror that like she's lost when it's demons, like when it's demons, mm-hmm. it takes her out of the reality. <laughs> and um you know this this gets like maybe a touch close with superhuman ed Gein, but um but the 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 fact that the horror is in her house on two occasions mm-hmm. with two different men yeah. um was very real mm-hmm. three different men really if you count gerald and oh who i'm sorry he is who i was counting oh okay gerald, and her, then oh yeah in that house and then her dad in the other house yes 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 at, yes i forgot about bonus man at a at dark <laughs> yeah. dark score lake yes mm-hmm. what is that what's his name? space cowboy i forgot about space, space cowboy. cowboy yeah and he is very scary in the movie like i had forgotten just like the him lurking in the corner love, the visual of that i was like oh my gosh i mm-hmm. love when he recognizes her in the courtroom mm-hmm. and he's just like a sweet I mean, he's not sweet because he's like whatever, he's like wheezy like, right behind you there. Yeah, he's just like a big lumbering. Like I'm not entirely sure what I'm up to. Um, yeah. I believe that actor. I could be wrong. Has been in Rob Zombie movies, but I might be conflating him with another Rob Zombie character. I think he's like Lurch from the Adams Family. Oh movies. yes, it is Lurch from yeah. the Adams Family. Yeah, but her having her moment of confronting him. And that's and as yeah. I said, texted to Sarah when that comes up in the in the courtroom in the in the book. I think she spits on him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, courtroom. he toned it down a bit. Yeah, he. It's a very, but it's exactly the Nancy Thompson end of uh, Nightmare yes. on Elm Street. Yes, it's exact where yeah. where you're. She essentially says, "What does she say in Nightmare on Elm Street, Sarah?" I take back every bit of energy I ever gave you, Freddie. You're nothing. You're shit. Beautiful. And in here, she says, "You're a lot smaller than I remember." Right. <laughs> it's great. Someone writing a review of this talking about how not scary it is is like even scarier than this is. And, um, <laughs> you know, like a leitmotif in my work is how like serial killers and stuff, like men who like really commit the most outlandishly intense sort of sins that men can, especially against women, are very scary. And yet the ones passing as normal are sometimes scarier because you're like, you're not locked up. You just say shit like that. And nothing happens to you. And I mean, you know, this book is like the Bev Marsh parts of it without that fun, you know, clown that <laughs> helped to lighten the tension between her yes. and her dad. Absolutely. <sighs> yeah, it is a lot of that. Yeah, I don't just like I, I mean, if someone who I don't know, ideally, people know from everything we've talked about that like 
this book is like 50% trigger warning. I mean, it's 50% trigger warning for sexual abuse and it's 25% trigger warning for like gross physical like body stuff. And then the other 25% is pop song references, I guess. <laughs> you know what you know the that phobia transphobia yeah yes, that too that of, course, of course the, the thing Ableism. that gets me about the degloving I, i'm just now realizing this i was trying mm. i've been processing this in the back of my head, head the whole time is like like saw to your point sarah mm. is it's it's needing to get out of a situation that you can imagine yourself being in mm-hmm. versus in so much of the gore or horror that happens in Stephen King books is like is like a thing that's happening to a person, not mm-hmm. a thing that that person has to do to themselves in order to get out. Totally. And you know, a, a lot of the themes that you're talking about on you're wrong about, which is just sort of like the um, the horrors of survival, big and 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 every day. So um, surviving, it's it's the survival shopping and pop music hour lately. Yeah. <laughs> It reminds it reminds of that is that it's like survive mm. you know whether you're degloving, whether you're um, slicing or dicing, to, yeah whether you're slicing or dicing or trying to or trying to work through shit that has come up in the past that's like getting you in the same life trap over and over or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it is all haunting and extraordinarily difficult. Yes, mm-hmm. I'll say this book has been very you know, important in my deconstruction journey, you know, in my, I don't want to speak for all Christianity, but you know, it does discourage a lot of self-reflection. They like to say like, you can't trust yourself. They'll quote like the heart is desperately wicked above all things and deceitful who can know it. Like lean not on your own understanding. My least favorite Asia Argento film. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That's just, that's so infuriating to me. It is. It is extremely infuriating. Um, And so, and I know it's the trope in like all fantasy movies that it's like the answer was in you all along is very inspiring. And I don't know, there's a lot to love with this story. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and I I think kind of the story is an antidote to the kind of the gaslighting that you commit against yourself mm-hmm. and your struggle to kind of carve out a life for yourself in an oppressive world or one where you have learned to be dead to your feelings for survival. I mean, yeah, it never occurred to me to think that this would be like a book that would also like resonate with people kind of coming out of a oppressive religious upbringing, but it makes total sense to me. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially that good wife character that I kind of always associated with my time there. And I was like, I just hate her. She just needs to go away. And mm-hmm. it's like, she's a part of you. Yeah. Right. Right. I know. And that's like the, truly like one of the really frustrating things about all this is like mm-hmm. you have to embrace, you can't really cast out any part of yourself, certainly not from your own sight. And like, which is a very biblical way I just said that, but. <laughs> Anyway. Well, particularly, I think like a lot of times too, and this is a, a, a slightly different, not a slightly different take, but a, along those same lines of like, who is the good wife character inside of you is I think like often, you know, particularly when we realize we're becoming our parents in one way or another, mm-hmm. people are like, um, um, 
you know, they'll, they'll try to make it not happen for as long as humanly possible through, mm-hmm. through artificial or, yeah. or implausible means. It'll inevitably happen because obviously it's going to happen. And then they'll be like, well, it just happened. I guess that's just who and who I am and how I am. And like, I'm going to like double down on being yeah. that rather than, and Sarah, this speaks to a lot of the things we talked about in Amadeus the other day about, about striving for perfection versus striving for being well-adjusted. Um, rather than figuring out like who that person is, that is inside of you and like mm-hmm. negotiating and navigating your relationship with that rather, you know, again, rather than being like, I cannot be this. And, and that's going to be successful, but ultimately you're going to be it, you know, be like, well, who is this person? Who is the good wife? And yeah. what, what nourishment am I getting out of that? And also what, you know, um, whatever the opposite of nourishment is. Coming out of our relationship. <laughs> um <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, had to be said. Um, I also, yeah, and I also feel like just to add to that, you can spend your life trying to avoid becoming your parents and then define yourself by trying to be the opposite of your parents, and it will amount to the same thing. And if you're me, it means you'll go so many years when you really should just have a Costco membership, but you don't have a Costco <laughs> membership because you're afraid of becoming your parents. And I do think it's a meaningful step that now I do have a Costco membership and I go to Costco all the time. I'm proud of you. Thank you. The hot dogs. Yeah. They're paying you she becomes, she becomes her father in a, in a not expected way, which hmm. is she becomes a, um, a person who gaslights her. You know, like that's, that's the yes. way that it manifests and yeah, happens Jesus. and that's what she inherits wow and so, you know which is a which is you know the curse of that sort of abuse <sighs> yes yeah and also you know and, and we get kind of as the novel progresses into how like you know jesse look at your life look at your choices look at your husband for that matter you married mm-hmm. someone a lot like your dad didn't you there right and like and if you're like walking down the aisle towards someone and you're like he's he's not like my dad He's probably like your dad. You shouldn't even have to be thinking that. Yeah. <laughs> and your dad was many people. Maybe yeah. one of those people it, it, that was in your dad is is worth marrying. But right. there's a lot of versions of it that aren't. I know. I'm totally leaving out of this the possibility that maybe you like liked your dad and that would be a good thing. That's just yeah. insane to me. I mean, I know it happens, but it's statistically irrelevant. <laughs> And that's not just bitterness talking. <laughs> Y'all should come and listen to our fun show about movies. <laughs> it's so fun. We never, ever talk about trivia or behind the scenes shit. We don't care. People are like, when will you talk about the movie? And we're like, why don't you want to talk about my seventh grade humiliation? That's what it's really about when you think about it. It's funny. I also love that we do get a bit of Good Dog Prince's POV in the book. Yeah. He does get humanized a bit. Like we get like where he came from. Why is he here? What is he doing? And yeah. you know, him who and is Jesse. the bitch master? What yeah. fuckhead set him loose in the woods? <laughs> it's like they're both just doing what they need to do to survive. I love. I yes, I loved. I was like, this is was. Was uh, Stephen King back in the cocaine when this when he wrote this one? Because I feel like um, writing dog POV is hmm. top tier to cocaine behavior. Like that is. I think Needful <laughs> Things was his POV. first yes, sober book, and I'm huh. trying to remember when that came out. 
I love that you know that. That's great. That's fantastic. <laughs> That's why you do what you do. I I um I do love the dog POV so much. Mm-hmm. I like that the movie we we talked about this uh before we all got on the call. 1991. The, so yeah, this must have been 92. This yeah. is peak. Yeah, this is the this was like he read that dog POV and was like, I gotta I gotta do some stuff. No, I think <laughs> it's I think it's great. I think it's 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 great that it shows up. It's awesome. To Sarah's points earlier, it's like incredibly experimental for a mm-hmm. for a um, horror writer to be to be doing this in like a very serious way where this is being yeah. presented. Yeah. Um, alongside and you know what everything I, else. And I, you know what I feel like you're saying is you're not saying horror writer because you and I both know what actual horror writers are right. like, and they do weird shit all the time. You're saying like horror writer. This yes, is the way Roger Ebert would say it. Totally. Like a dismissive, like that's what people sort of are yeah. making assumptions about. Just writing the same is... pot boiler over and over. And it's like, have you ever read any of them? <laughs> it's incredible mm-hmm. that he does that. The and so so the difference between movie and book, um, in book, the dog dies in order to in order to substantiate uh Jesse's made up story that makes it possible i don't know there's a reason mm-hmm. um um which is i feel like that one i don't know i feel like we the dog didn't have to die that's fine but the um um in the in the movie the dog doesn't die but jesse's imagination of herself tells her the thing that we should be gleaning from the book which you both are in survival mode and you mm-hmm. should actually learn a thing or two from this dog mm-hmm. yeah well, and also it's a dog who's like used to having a master and doesn't know how to survive without one. Oh, it's mm-hmm. so heartbreaking. And mm-hmm. as is Jesse. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Really well said. Just making sure your heart is being broken by at least two things. Yeah. <laughs> Someone really mentioned well. as I was looking up stuff the other day, and it's something I didn't even think about, but in the like very literary realm that she is like in jesus pose the whole time oh and she does God. kind of wound her wrists and find like a resurrection of, of sorts and i'm like didn't even think of that i have like a whole mental file here are some of my mental files monstera movies horror movies with monsteras in them there's a lot um and then b horror movies where women end up with the wounds of christ because yep. like this one ready or not immediately comes to mind I wish I could think of a third thing because that always sounds more impressive, but there's there's some stuff in that file. Well, this one also has the thing that prompted me to ask a question about this on Twitter, um, which is the the single outfit, like in Ready or Not or in Carrie, or sort of like a memorable mm-hmm. outfit that has some degeneration that tracks <laughs> with the progression of the character, which totally. is another thing that I And it gets covered enjoy. in blood, ideally. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm glad she wasn't topless for the movie. Yeah. 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 I mean, at a certain a point, it's just like, you don't want to... I don't want to look at Carla Gugino's breasts for a whole movie because it'll stop being special and they deserve to be special. <laughs> like caviar. <laughs> deserve to be savored. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, I mean, like... I know Stephen King gets a lot of shit for a lot of stuff, but I mean, for having a topless character the whole book, she is not sexualized. Like they are never really described. Yeah, just mentioned once that it happens, which is fascinating. I, so that was one of my other favorite, and I get, I, I totally understand that. Like in nearly any review online, 
almost 100% of the time, the democratization of reviews has just brought us people who need to work something out in therapy, mm-hmm. working it out through having just engaged a text in one way or another. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, and so, <laughs> um, you know, a lot of the negative review or a handful of the negative reviews that I came across were like, um, had mentioned in passing that Jesse at the end of the book talks about losing all of the weight. And she's like, she's happy about this. She's like, she'd be fine if she just stayed at the weight that she was or whatever. And she's like, this is classic King, whatever. And it's like, did you not read the rest of the book that yeah. has like an incredibly dynamic, uh, uh, illustration of a multi-layered person, but I get, you mm-hmm. know, I guess yeah. the people are working through some shit. And I get that Stephen King also just doesn't have a great track record in some of these arenas. One of the things that um, I was a little worried we were going to fall into the same place, but I think we see some King evolution, is uh, King has, we talk about this in our Dead Zone episode, some real issues with moms, real mm-hmm. issues with the monstrous mother. And yeah. in this case, mm-hmm. we get what seems to be that, maybe, but... Then it's revealed that, like, you know, maybe that's, like, a slight bit of character, but it's not sort of over the top in the the way that it is. And that dynamic is used in the father's manipulation of Jesse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So that was, like, a surprisingly, um, not layered, but, like, a surprisingly thoughtful pivot for the typical Stevie mother. Well, it's like misery, but everything's scaled down, I feel like in many ways and like we have kind of the monstrous mother in misery and also here and just like whittled down to a more everyday like endemic you know scale and i think yeah like to me the yeah there's plenty of stuff in in stephen king's writing of women that rings misogynistic for me but i tend to like accept a lot of the monstrous mom stuff because i always i always appreciate like being shown women who are like who are awful or who are you know complicit um and i don't like to use the word evil but who do like really awful shit uh where you see that like they're like that not because they're like kind of over the top like sexy noir villainesses but because life chews up women just like it chews up men and uh some women direct that poison outward rather than inward as is uh the mandate <laughs> right right well yeah in, in in it you actually get an interesting balance where you have bev's father and then richie's mother and it's just like mm-hmm. all parents uh fuck yeah. up their kids in some very interesting way <laughs> and then yeah. you have um who is the the mike who ends up running the librarian mike's dad who's wonderful uh- yeah, and yes. and that's our lone exception for almost every Stephen book, King book maybe ever written. So yeah, is Mike's dad the one who ultimately dies in the fire? Yeah, do or both he, of his parents die? His whole family yes. dies in that fire. Yeah, 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 because yeah. you know, you know what they say: only the good dads die young. <laughs> well, did we have any final thoughts we wanted to share? Um, I mean, I just really love this novel and this movie and I loved having the chance to discuss it with you and mm-hmm. yeah I it just it's um I remain um you know it remains something that feels very meaningful to me and I'm uh just happy that 
somebody bothered to write a novel like this that then also like through the accident of every previous thing the author had written being a bestseller pretty much managed you know because like someone else could write this and it would be published by the University of Iowa Press and there would be like a 500 print run <laughs> right that's what I think mm-hmm. and um, I love that this like made it in such a big way into the world yeah cosine I love this book. It absolutely blew me away the first time I read it. Like I said, I went in with really low expectations because I'm like, how is this possibly going to work? And then it resonated with me in ways that I did not expect and that uh, laid the groundwork to help me understand a lot of stuff later on. I had friends that came forward with sexual abuse um, against the man that used to be our youth pastor and kind of seeing that they had a similar dynamic as this was i mean illuminating yeah and awful well, to the, and to the point i mean my my family works for the boston archdiocese while the while the it was spotlight times and um wow. just watching how like to your points about what you said about what expectations are about whether or not you can trust the heart or like a greater authority should be doing that for you i mean you're essentially um you're essentially creating the perfect conditions for mm-hmm. uh, for abuse. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Uh, not accidentally. I no. Imagine. Not at no. all. It's yeah. so, so perfectly see, constructed. So it was interesting hearing you say that earlier because, I mean, this is this is something that's not just about what's going on in the home. This is mm-hmm. about how power structures work. Generally Absolutely. Well. And I mean, a big power structure. There were so many sermons I sat through about the dangers of gossiping. And you know what? That is ultimately what led to... It coming out was someone saying, hey, I remember you being close with him. I remember you babysat for him. Did you have this experience mm-hmm. as well? Yeah. And it being, yeah, I did. And how gossiping becomes a code word for women, women talking. Sharing. I yeah. wonder if that's like they talk about that in that movie that I haven't seen yet because it was only briefly in major franchise theaters in my city. It's a Sarah yeah. Polly one, Sarah. There we go. I love her. I yeah, love the, the I love Sarah Polly and Sarah Paulson. I hope they do a, a movie together someday. <laughs> they do a team up. Paul McCartney. I would also it this also makes me think to add, um, you know, I've researched and uh, podcasted about the satanic panic a fair bit. I can't believe I guess use podcasted as a verb. I feel like I'm a millennial character on a Michael Patrick King show um but i have and like one of the things that i come back to a lot about it is that like an unfortunate consequence one of the many unfortunate consequences of the satanic panic was this kind of catering to the kind of instinctual belief on the part of a lot of americans of like sure i remember my father abusing me you know during the eclipse but it wasn't violent and it wasn't that bad. And it's like, you know, I can kind of rationalize it. So there, it has to be more, there has to be something for me to be this fucked up, something, you know, proportionally fucked up has to have happened to me and this isn't enough. And that's where the Satanists become so valuable because you then are like, yeah, your dad was under control of Satanists and he made you eat babies, mm-hmm. which, yeah. you know, kind of actually comes up later in the serial killer plot in a way, but anyway, Um, And I love that this is a book that, you know, is kind of of this time and is saying like, no, like, whatever you've been through is enough. And like, you can spend your whole life rationalizing that other people 
have had it worse in terms of, of abuse or assault or just any kind of trauma. But like, ultimately, that's it. That's just another way of avoiding looking at it. Yeah, absolutely. And I will also say, so as to not end on such a grim note, um, that I was reading this last night and it mentioned uh, Jesse freaking out after Ruth tried to talk to her about the eclipse and her like very quickly moving out and finding an apartment with like kind of normie girls who wear a lot mm-hmm. of ship and shore blouses. And I was like, what's ship and shore? That feels like a thing I should know. And then I took off the sweater and it's it's a ship and shore sweater. Wow. Which I didn't know. And I don't really wear it very often either. So, you know, I just like, I like when stuff like that happens. It doesn't have to mean anything. It's just cool. That is cool. We have uh, a few traditions on this podcast, but one of them is to ask what you've been enjoying in horror lately. So do you have a chilling obsession? Well, yesterday I went to the uh, wonderful Hollywood theater here in Portland, Oregon, um, and saw King Kong in 35 millimeter. And King Kong is um, so much more fucked up and violent than I ever realized. It really puts the pre and pre code. It's got like (laughs) King Kong has to kill so many dinosaurs I had no idea how much of that movie was spent killing dinosaurs <laughs> and also being racist. It's like one of those movies where like what you think of as the movie is like the last seven minutes of the movie. And I'm like, yeah, I'm excited to learn more about King Kong. I really want to know where all the other giant, where, like where does family go? Why is he alone on that island? That's my main question going forward. Yeah, where did he come from? Yeah. I read, um, Knowing that the movie uh, Knock at the Cabin is coming out, um, I read Paul Tremblay. I've read a lot of Paul Tremblay's books, but I never read uh, the book that that's based on, which is uh, Cabin at the End of the World, I think. Mm-hmm. Much more logical title than Knock at the Cabin. Um, and I would uh, recommend it if you like reading horror books. Uh, I am very curious about what changes they're going to make yeah. to the movie in order to make. Uh, Americans not refuse to watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, you just can't kill yeah. kids in movies anymore. No, yeah. not like although although Halloween the, the new Halloween <laughs> starts has a <laughs> phenomenal kid death, like a child Fantastic. dies in the, in, the, in the new Halloween, and That's you're like, yeah, open. this is how this is how we're starting. I love how whenever we talk about horror, we're like, horror is not just for creeps. And sickos, ways for people to think about the world they live in, and also anxiety and depression. And then we say shit like that, and I'm like, yeah, it's no. layered for people to think. We're it's sick. layered. There's a lot. Yeah, yeah. So there's, so I, I'm. There's a lot, and the the book ends in a outside of even that ends in a way that is like incredibly thoughtful in a way that I'm mm-hmm. very, I'm struggling to know how M. Night Shyamalan is going yeah. to pull off but I'm, I'm eager to see what happens Alex yeah. I have to say I don't think he's gonna <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm very worried I Paul Tremblay is one of my favorite authors um, I love that book and I know when I, I spoke to him a few months ago um, about his book The Paul Bearers Club he did mention that I love that it, book. There, it was good, yeah. That there had been some changes, and if you think you know what's going to happen, 
you don't. So I imagine like, <laughs> that's the case. And yeah. then, yeah, totally. And then just my only other recommendation is I'm excited for, and this isn't a recommendation about anything I've engaged, but I know that you are also, we're, we, we three are Stephen Graham Jones fans and mm-hmm. the sequel to um, My Heart is a Chainsaw comes out this year, right? Yeah. And I'm excited for that. Yeah. I think he might be doing a signing near me next month. So nice. Fantastic. Go see ya. Uh, I watched Megan the other day and I had so much fun. I went on a Saturday and it was all like teen girls with their friends and their moms. I think I was the only like single 30 year old (laughs) in the theater, but it was so fun. Also another child death that I was kind of cheering on. I'm like, she was right. Oh yeah. Honestly though. Megan did nothing wrong. (laughs) Yeah. That kid was going to grow up to be Gerald. Yeah. I love that this is a movie that feels like it's catering to teen girls. Yes. Yeah, we Sarah and I saw it in the theater. It was Sarah's second time. It was my first, and it was full of not not boys, teen not boys mm-hmm. of many stripes. There you go, great. little little robot girl bosses. <laughs> yes. There was like two teen boys, but yeah, it was so fun. I'm so glad Allison Williams has just like come on into like the the horror genre. She is great. Um, that child actress, I know she's been in couple other things i want to say she was also in my plan against the haunting of hill house she was i was just reading she was. this okay yeah, yeah. violet mcgraw mm-hmm. i'm so sorry i don't want to get greedy with my things but mm. i do want to say i saw skin of Marink in the theater and i think people <gasps> should watch it but um maybe don't go in a theater where you will for sure be surrounded by people who are frustrated with the movie <laughs> oh it's coming to shutter i think Great. in a few weeks so. watch it when you watch it anyone who's gonna watch it Put your fucking phone in another room okay. and just pay attention to the movie. Mm-hmm. Like it not works a movie I have to simmers. look at. It, it works because it's it's boring. It works because it's boring in parts. Interesting. And then when it's not boring, so like if you take yourself out of being bored with a second screen, you're mm-hmm. gonna not have a good time. Oh yeah, I mean, I boredom is a crucial element of horror. Look at Stanley Kubrick's The Shining. Totally. And this this also makes the Blair Witch Project, which is itself kind mm. of a boring movie, mm-hmm. um, look like a um, look like a Jerry Brockheimer movie. <laughs> well, I'm excited. <laughs> I know. I've heard people say it's experimental. I had someone in the group chat for our Patreon supporters say that they're like, it was a little too weird for me. I didn't like it, but I was definitely scared when I got home. Mm. Like, I yeah. definitely like that's a great it sticks one. with you for yeah. sure. Nice. Yeah. You see it like kind of the way that you see the the space cowboy in oh. the in the book. Yeah. You kind of see, you know, when like you close your eyes and you have something burned in your eyes. That's that's how I felt after seeing the movie. Mm. You see pieces wow. of it in your in your home after. Is it at all like House of Leaves? It feels kind of House of Leavesy based you know, on the synopsis. Sarah, yeah, in a that's a great yeah, that's a great like... comparison similar yes mm. in, in some way structurally for mm. sure yeah because house of leaves is also like intentionally boring in a very yes. exciting way yeah it's totally oh, like... great comparison interesting i'm very excited to check it out i've been very excited about hearing all the buzz about it in the the horror twitter sphere we live in a great time to be horror yeah fans. we do we absolutely we do really honestly do. when i started the podcast and like 2017 i had to really dig for like different horror topics and stuff and now i'm like (laughs) i can barely keep up with everything coming out every year i do not read everything that comes out and i would actually say maybe the best time ever for horror movies because it's so like even 10 years ago 
I remember there were so many movies that I had to like order on VHS from eBay because no mm-hmm. one they had they weren't you know available any other way. And now it just feels like there's so much obscure stuff that you can just like watch with like three clicks while you're lying on your couch. Yeah, yeah we have so much accessibility now. Well, another tradition we have on the podcast is to ask our guests what their final girl song would be. And we have a, a playlist where we keep everyone's answers. That's so is this so to clarify, is this like the song that plays as you're like, you know, riding away in the pickup truck or whatever? I've had people interpret it that way or like the final confrontation or like mm. end credits, you know, okay. however you want to take it. Okay. I will go first. Can okay. I go first, Sarah? Because yeah. I feel like yours is going to be more clever than mine. Well, I don't so know. Yeah, but better, go. Better rhythm. We might have the um, same one, actually. I don't think we do. I know we don't. The car- We'll find out. That would be funny if we do that. The karaoke, my, my go-to karaoke song, I've sung two karaoke songs ever in my life, and one is Ring of Fire, which is not my go-to uh, um, the final girl song. And the second is The Misfits Where Eagles Dare, which the refrain is, I ain't no goddamn son of a, son of a bitch. You better think about it, baby. And it just says that over and over. And nice. I feel like as a driving away Sally Hardesty on the mm-hmm. back of the pickup truck into the into the distance, um, it's it's a perfect it's a perfect song, and it has mm-hmm. some you know presumed gender inversion, which is fun too. Ooh. I do like that. That's good. Mm. Well. I mean, I think about this practically daily, honestly, because like whenever I'm <laughs> listening to music, I'm like, would this be a good end of a horror movie song? Um, and my current thought is a um, whole lot of shaking going on by the the version by Little Richard, mm-hmm. which is just like one of those like very arch sort of pop songs um, in this context, which to me kind of I don't know. I just love that the idea of that at the end of like specifically a movie where like you as the final girl have just had to kill a lot of people and you're just like, you're, you're just kind of like feeling some euphoria. Um, and it's, and it opens with the line, come on over baby, which I love. Cause it's just like, whatever, just I'll come, come see if you can take me. Let's do it. <laughs> I love that. Okay. I will be adding those two to the playlist and putting them on the Instagram story when this episode releases. I actually think this is going to be like the Valentine's week Perfect. <laughs> that comes out. So that's the most perfect thing. It's a romantic, it's a movie and a book about a romantic getaway. Absolutely. That's so true. And oh my gosh. You guys need to do Dolores Claiborne. I am very excited to hear that. We the audio book. I'm you on to do Dolores yeah. Claiborne. And then we, can do, we can do sister episodes. Absolutely. We'll see each other across the eclipse. Aww. <laughs> I love that. I can't, I can't believe that. I'm so glad you brought that up. I love that when we first get the eclipse in the movie, it's starting from left to right. And at the very end of the movie, she's walking into the distance and the, um, the shadow is exiting to the right. So like mm. we, we, the movie takes place over the progression of the eclipse that's mm. happening inside of her. Mm, Art okay. house shit. That. Wow. Love it. Just hardcore. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for coming on and talking to me about one of my favorites. I could not have picked two better people to bring on for this so thank you thank Thank you you. this is so wonderful to get to talk about gerald's game (laughs) perfect sunday yeah (laughs) and where can people find you online 
Uh, they can find our show, um, You Are Good, on Twitter and Instagram at You Are Good Pod. And you can find Sarah's show on Twitter and Instagram, um, which is called You're Wrong About. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, uh, I think You're Wrong About Pod. I think it's where you're, you're Wrong About Pod on Instagram. That's right. Maybe. And then You're Wrong About mm-hmm. on yeah. Twitter. Yeah. And then, you know, famously, you can find the podcasts themselves wherever you get your podcast. I have a long-term fantasy of starting a podcast platform called wherever, because then retroactively <laughs> every podcast will be doing advertising for you without realizing. <laughs> Nobody take my idea. It's my idea. Okay. Virtual trademark. <laughs> your stamps on it. Awesome. Thank you so much, Stephanie. Books in the Freezer is a bi-weekly podcast. We post episodes every other Tuesday. You can find us on Twitter at Books Freezer Pod, on Instagram at Books in the Freezer, on TikTok at Books in the Freezer, or you can send us an email at Books in the Freezer at gmail.com. If you would like to show your support for the podcast, there are a few ways to do that. And one of them is to become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash books in the freezer. There's a one, three and a $5 level with all kinds of perks at each level going from early episode releases, group chats, movie nights and stuff like that. So if that sounds interesting to you, definitely check that out at patreon.com slash books in the freezer. Another way to support the podcast is to use affiliate links. Those will be listed on the show notes for this episode, as well as books that were mentioned throughout this episode. So you can go on there, links to places like Amazon, Libro FM, and Fangoria. And if you're looking for a way to show your support without spending money, there are definitely ways to do that. Posting about the podcast, word of mouth, all of that is very huge, very important for small indie podcasts like this one. Also taking time to leave reviews on podcast sites like Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And I have a new Apple Podcast review. Five stars from Sakura-chan67. Love the vibe. Great podcast. And the reason my holds list in Libby is so full. Sweating, smiling emoji. As a reader with limited time, I appreciate the time and attention given to the reviews and also love the author interviews. Well done. Thank you so much for that review. And thank you to all of you who have taken time to leave a few kind words about the show. I mean, I appreciate it because, of course, I love reading nice things about the show, obviously. But it's also really helpful for growth and the show and I don't know. I don't understand the algorithm. It is like a fickle old god. But I know that if you feed it reviews, uh, you will be rewarded by getting the show in front of more people. Or so I've been told. So thank you to all of you. I'm Stephanie. You can find me on Twitter at Lady underscore Ganya. That's L-A-D-Y underscore G-A-G-N-O-N. And on Instagram at That's What She Read. And that is That's With Two A's. So thank you so much for listening and see you next time on Books in the Freezer. (laughs) 